Welcome to the Old Paths podcast. My name is Cody Justice. This evening, I'm joined by Michael Spengler and Benjamin Hicks. Michael, how are you doing, brother? Well, by God's grace. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Benjamin, how about yourself? How are you? Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute, sir. Sorry, brothers, but much better than I deserve. Very thankful to be here. Great. I'm thankful to be here as well. So this evening, uh, Lord willing, we're going to try to wrap up our critique of 1689 federalism, working through the last points on the Mosaic Covenant, and then taking some time to look at differences in typology. What I'd like to do for us before we do that is to very briefly review uh, where we've gone and maybe just give some slight corrections to a few things that I think maybe uh, were confusing for some people. So the first um, were, our agree were our agreements, so agreements between what we might call Reformed Federalism, which you can find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, and then 1689 Federalism. Uh, first would be the Visible Invisible Church. When I raised that as an agreement, I did not mean to say that we were agreed on all the details of that, simply that we were agreed in terms of that being a biblical and valid distinction. Uh, that's really all I meant to say there. The second is salvation of Old Testament saints. So we both believe that uh, the saints were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then the third was the confession, both the London Baptist and the Westminster, chapter 8, paragraph 6. They are the same uh, for all intents and purposes, which has created some confusion which maybe we're going to get into a little bit uh, this evening. Then in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, we talked about circumcision. We did say it was, did have an outward national, race, racial, genealogical, physical element, but that that's secondary. The main thing was always uh, Christ's uh, spirituality, redemption in him. We disagreed with Cox, Nehemiah Cox, splitting the Abrahamic covenant between Genesis 12 and 15 on the one hand and Genesis 17 on the other. Although uh, I did get clarity, Dr. Samuel Renahan does not, does not do that. So that's some kind of a difference there between the, I guess the, the first man who's created the theology and then the man present day, who's really popularizing it, which is, I mean, something I think is interesting. Um, then we, we talked about how the Abrahamic covenant uh, in 1689 federalism it talks about it's a covenant based on works or obedience. Um, and we saw really the same thing in the Mosaic Covenant. They say it's a temporal covenant of works for temporal life and blessings in the land of Canaan. I think to sum it up, really, we don't, we don't say there's nothing temporal about it, but we say it's, it's not the main thing. It was never intended to be uh, the main thing. The gospel, spirituality, experimental, evangelical religion was always the design at the heart of it. So um, just a few more points here on the Mosaic Covenant, and then I'll, I'll pass it to, uh, I'll pass it to Michael, and then we'll come to you, Benjamin, if there's anything you brethren wanted to raise. So Mosaic Covenant, a typological covenant that respects temporal life in the land of Canaan, number one. Number two, demands an obedience an unbeliever could render. Number three is a heightened common grace covenant with heightened common grace blessings. Number four does not save in itself. Is there anything there, Michael, because uh, you weren't with us last time that you'd like to briefly speak to or raise? No, thank you. I appreciate the review, though. Okay. Benjamin? Yeah, I would just say that for for our listeners' sake, uh, it it's possible that you might be coming from a Baptist persuasion and some of these things seem very foreign to you. And it's uh, maybe important just to review this point briefly, which is that um, not everyone who would identify as a Baptist or would identify as a Reformed Baptist would hold to all of these distinctive. However, once you are getting into the uh, history of specifically 1689 federalism, which um, comes from a specific tradition, a specific viewpoint, which is often uh, that which is most rigorously and consistently opposed to um, the historic confessional reform perspective that we're, we're coming from. 
it is it's very important to understand and um i trust that uh, if you've been following us thus far and are still following us uh it's we're, you're going to see that um aspects of these beliefs are often uh both beneath the surface in a lot of discussions about baptism and covenant and uh, so if, if it's not immediately clear this is representing your perspective there there probably is still something for you to learn so that's what i would say yeah it's a good reminder thank you for that um certainly we want to help profit the brethren so we're going to come right to the next point under the mosaic covenant to start with and um, it's this idea that 1689 federalism puts forth it says that the mosaic covenant or really you could say the old covenant is different in substance uh, than the new covenant um, this to me is at least an apparent disagreement but I'm, I'm not sure i'm not convinced really that it is when you get underneath um the term so just a little bit of background uh before i come to one of you brethren it is a it's an aristotelian distinction it goes back to it goes back to essence and accidents um it's david dixon 17th century presbyterian who gives the example uh, the man you could liken to the substance his clothing you could liken to the accidents which can change, but it's not essential to who he is. Um, and so what this is then saying is that they're fundamentally, essentially different, different covenants. Um, at least that's what it seems on the surface. But uh, as we talked about before the show began, and I'm still convinced of, um, despite um, Brandon Adams saying a few things to the contrary, I'm still convinced that when they use the word substance, they mean the concept classically understood by the word administration because they say there are peculiar parties and promises and precepts and blessings and penalties to the Mosaic Covenant, which are not the same as the New Covenant. So they're highlighting the peculiarities of the Mosaic Covenant, for example, the land of Canaan. Uh, and this kind of comes back to one of the things Dr. Renahan says. He says they're promised the land of Canaan and even the unregenerate can go up and take the land and go to war, so on and so forth. And so in, that's in his interview, Two-Tier Typology and Old Testament Salvation. It seems to me he deduces from that because you've got the possibility of regener unregenerate people going up to war. Therefore, that's definitive of the very nature of the covenant. So. Benjamin, I know I said a lot of things there. You can touch on any of those things, or we can touch on specifically point E. Uh, what would you like to say to, to any of that, brother? Yeah, and I think that this might be another case where some people might be getting lost and saying, well, why are we talking about Aristotle? We want to understand the Bible, right? And uh, so I think there's, there's two things that could be said for that. One is that when we are entering into the history of understanding covenant theology and in very precisely articulating what what we speak about um, it's it's good to familiarize yourself with some of the theological language that's been used and not simply to be hung up on um, the fact that it's not overly familiar with us but to get at what they mean right so both sides of us were laying up what's in the old testament scriptures and the new testament scriptures concerning god's dealings with man and we're seeing that there are some differences under the old covenant you have things that are not proper to god's people today circumcision animal sacrifices dietary laws a temp a physical temple that we go to a physical land where all the people are are to dwell and so forth at the same time when you read especially the new testament and you're looking at romans galatians and hebrews and other uh, books as well it certainly presents the faith and the salvation of the Old Testament saints as the same as our own. And so immediately we're confronted by what is the principle of continuity and discontinuity? What is the same and what's different? In uh, historical form theology, when we sp speak of substance, we speak of those things which are the same, and especially where it concerns Christ and his salvation. That is, that is what we're saying, that it's the same Christ who saves and his people under the Old Covenant and the New both before his coming in the flesh and after his accomplishment of his salvation 
they are the same. And so that's that's all that, that we're saying here. And uh, it seems as though um, in order to uh, get out of some of the implications of that, our Baptist brothers have um, tried to, um, I think, uh, either reinterpret or uh, dissent from uh, Reformed theology in, in different ways. So um, I think that, that might be a bit of review from, uh, from what we said last time, but I, I think that yeah, that, that's what I would say. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's what you said. It was very important. So uh, it's, it sounded like to me and part of that, Benjamin, you said that Christ, redemption in him, that's the substance, correct? Correct. Michael, do you agree with that? And if, if you do, could you uh, maybe just expand expand that a little bit for us? Yes, I do agree. I think the most useful proof of it is to look at saints in the Old Testament and to see how they confessed their own faith in God, especially in relation to those things that are uniquely Old Testament. So one passage that comes to mind is Psalm 51. In verse 16, David said, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou would not despise. Notice David, under the Old Testament, is using emphatic language to say that the point of the Old Testament is that we would have a broken heart over sin before God. It is evangelical. That sum, broken heart summarizes faith and repentance in Christ and for eternal salvation. He says it so strongly, thou desirest not sacrifice. Now we know he's not being absolute because he actually goes on in verses 18 and 19 to speak of God being pleased with bullocks, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. But his point is that every faithful Israelite would have understood that the point, the aim of those Old Testament sacrifices was the same aim as that of the New Testament, this dispensation of the covenant we live in now. It's that men would have broken hearts over sin, come to Christ, and be saved. Amen, brother. Thank you for that. I agree 100% with you. And now I'd like to um, become the 1689 Federalist objector, not to be cheeky, but um, this is, I think, could be useful. So, okay, I, I hear you on that. But um, that is not, that spirituality is not inherent to the Mosaic Covenant. I'm speaking as 1689 Federalist. That's either getting there by way of a creational requirement, which is, as far as I understand what Brandon Adams says in um, one of the videos, or it's getting there retroactively from the new covenant backward. So you get this idea. It's either, it's either spirituality coming from creation into the Mosaic covenant or from, uh, from creation into the old covenant or from the new covenant into the old covenant. What, how would you respond to that, Michael? Well, there was no evangelical covenant at creation. The nature of it is it has to come after sin, after the broken covenant of works. But if you want to say that it's imported from then before the time of Moses, I could agree with that because it's the same covenant that Adam had, that David had, and that every believer has in Christ. If they want to speak about importing it from the New Testament so that it's retroactive, well, that seems not very far from exactly what I and other Presbyterians and many other Christians have been trying to say. I mean, Augustine articulated it in the relationship between the new between the Testaments. He said that the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And the point is, is that there are two Testaments pointing to the same reality, the same substance. So, I would ask them how their idea of retroactivity of the new covenant 
being present in the Old Testament is not saying the exact same thing as we are. That's the million dollar question. Um, and that's a question I would like to have answered because I'm not convinced that conceptually there is any meaningful difference because they've got this saving substance in relation to Christ that's spiritual, that can transcend time, if you will, and be manifested in all these different dispensations. And at that point, my mind is thinking, how is that at all different from what we're saying? I don't see how it is. Benjamin, would you like to say anything? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to add to what Michael said, except to say that this isn't also, what Michael said is also not unique to those who hold to historic Presbyterianism or historic um, confessional reform positions on baptism. I recall a number of years ago, I was listening to Dr. James White, The Dividing Line, and uh, he he was uh, also confused the first time he encountered this specific articulation of Baptist theology. And I think that um, what those in this tradition would themselves acknowledge, I think, is that um, the, the, uh, the 20th century revival of Reformed Baptist theology generally mapped on exactly to our own categories and our own articulations of things. And uh, the modern revival of the, the original 1689 position maybe some changes um, is, is a, it's a, it's a bit novel to Baptists as they've, as they've articulated these things. So just to say that uh, if, if you as a Baptist would, um, would hold to uh, the same kind of objection that Michael's saying, like what is really the difference, then uh, you, you may actually not agree with 1689 federalism in which case uh, you, you may still hold to a Baptist position while still um, holding in the main to, to what we, we would affirm as well. So um, just on, on that question, of course. So let's maybe sum up this point. I'm suggesting that when 1689 federalism says the old covenant is different in substance than the new covenant, that it all hinges on the word substance and that conceptually what they mean by the word substance is what has classically been used by the word administration. In other words, they use the word substance for the concept administration when we consider it from a historical theological perspective. I'm convinced that's the case. I don't have to have strong argumentation to see it otherwise. And so then what inevitably happens is that men are confused if they don't think about it that way, because you just hear that and you think, oh, they're radically different from me. But when you get underneath the term and get to what they mean by the term, it's actually a point of agreement because they're conceptually saying the old covenant is different in administration than the new covenant to which we as Pado Baptists would say, yes, we fully agree. Uh, just a note here in the, uh, latest video Brandon did with Richard Barcelos and uh, Samuel Renahan. At, toward the end of that video, uh, Dr. Renahan suggests that the word administration is unhelpful. And I would like to just put forward the idea that I think one of the reasons for that is because he already has the concept assigned in his system. I'm not trying to be too abstract or technical, but if what I've said is correct, then he's already got the concept assigned so where else is he going to put it you know if he uses the word i think it might start to reveal what's going on in these uh these equivocations benjamin is there anything you wanted to say any further on this point no i think i think as we've we've laid it out the the difference is clear right and uh... okay all right well let's move on then um to point f they say it's not spiritual uh, which we already kind of touched on, any spirituality required is imported either from creation as a creational requirement upon all, for example, that all men are you know, required to worship the Lord, not only externally, but internally, or it comes from the new covenant, you know, reaching back retroactively somehow. Um, do you, brethren, sense any further problems with that beyond what we've already highlighted? Michael? I'd reiterate that this appeal to creation is a problem because by pure creation, 
there there was not even fellowship with God. We had to have God condescend to us, even in our perfection, if we would have fellowship and communion with him. That was the aim of the covenant of works. But the covenant of works is broken, and there's no way we can use it today except it'll be it'll condemn us so what would it mean to be imported from creation spirituality today is evangelical there's no other spirituality it's it's a spirituality of the covenant of grace so creation and covenant are not the same category perhaps you can explain better though what they mean yeah, let me expand just a little bit. So I'm pulling this from that same interview, two-tier typology in Old Testament salvation. Brandon Adams is the one who raised this. He raised it because they kept getting this criticism that it was uh, that they were requiring a uh, bootstrapped, unbelieving obedience in the Mosaic Covenant because they say – the Mosaic Covenant demands an obedience which even an unbeliever could render. And so they're getting this criticism from Reformed Forum, and I would echo it, that you're requiring an external unbelieving obedience. There's no spirituality there. It's no evangelical religion. Then Brandon comes in and says, well, we're not, we're not saying that, even though they have said it you know, five or six times. And then he says – God's always been requiring spirituality and spiritual obedience since creation of man. Does that help you? Well, yes, the law is written on our heart from creation, and the first commandment teaches us that we ought to know and acknowledge God and so forth. But there is no hope of spiritual fellowship with him apart from the covenant of grace. We might have a duty to draw near to God insofar as he's made himself known to us. But without the covenant of grace, he has not made himself known to us in a saving way. And we might have all our duties, but we simply can't do them. So that's a problem. That's a problem. There are other systems that I'm familiar with that have some idea of things changing when it gets to Moses and there was some sort of covenant of promise before that. So I'm familiar with this idea of import importing from before, but doing it from creation seems to really mix categories. Hmm. Benjamin, is there anything you'd like to say to this point? <laughs> Yeah, I I think that um, what what Michael said is is very adequate. Um, I I I mean, perhaps it would be helpful just to briefly state one one point of agreement, which is that um, it it is certainly the case that there were unconverted people in the Old Testament church among the Testament people of God, and um, the the law considered as the law did require of them spiritual obedience. Yes. So the, the law is not just about their external conduct, but their in, internal conduct. And God is, is right to require a full um, submission to his will in that respect. And of course, the, the central text uh, that we, we speak about is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, what is that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. And... Um, Apart from faith in Christ, such obedience could, would, would be impossible in any respect, not only in a, in a perfect respect, but in, in even in an imperfect respect, because you cannot love God at all apart from uh, faith in Christ as a, as a fallen sinner dead in your sins. So the, the, um, the unbelieving Israelites certainly would have perished under the wrath of God according to the terms of the law and the, and the curse of the law. However, it would be, um, to, to me, it, it would not do justice at all to the revelation that we have 
to suggest that God left left them in that condition without the provision of a mediator. And I'm sure that they would, on the other side, would not want to say that either. Um, and so it, it it seems a little bit um, strange to uh, to then raise these objections because we know that uh, Christ was applied to the to the believing Jew, and not apart from, but through and in the uh, the revelation given by Moses, sacrifice, yes. the shedding of blood, uh, obviously the circumcision which predated Moses, and um, yeah, and the explicit promises of the the promise seed. So in all these things, I think that uh, we that there's not really any need to depart from how our, our fathers have articulated it. Yeah, and you there toward the end uh, brought something to my mind, which is that if we're, if we're saying it's the new covenant retroactive and that it's revealed somehow through the old covenant, well, are we not then saying that it is by virtue of the old covenant? Because that's where the revelation is, is made of, of Christ. Uh, or even as Michael's raised with Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promised seed of the woman. And then what I believe, verse 21, is the first animal sacrifice of God for man. Now, are, is, are these not gospel things? Um, and they're then present. It's it's It's... I think when we just make it be the new covenant reaching back, um, I don't know that we're doing justice to their situation because they didn't have they didn't have the full revelation of Jesus Christ that he'd be born of the Virgin Mary, he's, he'd be Jesus of Nazareth, so on and so forth. They they now they had Christ because he is the seed of the woman. They had that promise, um, but they didn't have that full revelation. Yet it was nevertheless by virtue of that very revelation that God gave then that they were able to come to Christ. Are you brethren, do you follow what I'm saying there? Michael, does that make sense? It does. They had the same Christ revealed to them in a different way and with less fullness, but it was the same Christ. We can say that the redemption was not yet accomplished. And that's true. In fact, at the time, Christ had not yet died or risen again. That would be true for the apostles in Christ's day. But they and all Old Testament saints had hope because the same Christ who did accomplish in time promised to do so from eternity to the Father, and his promise was as good as done. He did, in that sense, undertake for all his people from eternity. And that's why the Old Testament saints could be saved. So that can be a wholesome way to speak about retroactivity but really it's all it all happened in advance not that salvation was accomplished in advance but that christ did undertake for his people to take their debt on him so it's a difference between the man actually paying the debt the surety actually paying the debt and promising to pay it as soon as Christ promised to pay it, it was counted upon him. And that's why Abraham could be forgiven before Jesus died. I think that our brethren, the 1689 Federalists, would agree with what you've said there. I was listening to uh, one of the podcasts again today while working, trying to freshen myself up. And it was said something like, um, before the cross, they're saved on credit. After the cross, they're saved on debit. Um huh. I, no, I, I think we would agree. yeah we would agree with that so uh, it's just again these languages the, the semantics and just and emphases sometimes can muddy things so uh let me quote here from fairbairn where he's talking about the uh ordinances i believe of the mosaic covenant this is from his hermeneutical manual page 148 he says quote by calling the ordinances symbolical we mean that they expressed, by means of the outward rite or action, certain religious views and principles which the worshiper was expected in the performance of the service to recognize and heartily concur in. It was the conscious recognition of these views and principles and the exercise of the feelings growing out of them for which more immediately the outward service was appointed and in which its acceptability with God properly consisted." 
end quote. So, I mean, really for me, that's, that's much like the Lord's Supper, for example. The Lord says, you know, we're to judge ourselves. We're to judge the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is symbolic. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. Benjamin, would you agree with this quote, what it's saying about the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant? Yeah, as, as I work through his quote, I, I think it, it's saying something very, very, I think, commonsensical, right? Which is that God would uh, not have ordained such a worship without it having heart religion at its core. And right? I think that is, that is what is being said there. And maybe, um, maybe the reason why it needs to be said is that the the Jewish uh, people in the Old Covenant Church were often falling into the um, the era of externalism, uh, a faithless, loveless, uh, rote kind of religion. Um, and so, where that is warned against, sometimes the prophets will will speak very dire directly about God's loathing of of those external things. But they're they are not um, spoken of properly as in their right use, but rather in their improper use. So I think especially of um, something like I Isaiah chapter one, for example, where you go through that, and it's very clear that God speaks in in a way that shows He's very displeased with with the Lord's uh, with the, His people's worship. But that that's the proper um, way to understand it that they're abusing it, not using it correctly. And um, and so where we are, uh, where we are free from some of those external ordinances, right? We also ought to recognize that the the, the era of externalism can still uh, come upon us even under the new covenant. So it's not a it's not a unique thing, even where it comes to the preaching of the gospel or the the right use of the sacraments or or other spiritual observances. If they're not done in faith and from the heart then they are not in that sense pleasing to God. Amen. Let me add the second quote, and then Michael, I'll come to you to touch, or if you want to touch on either one of the quotes. Here's the second quote from uh, Patrick Fairbairn's Typology of Scripture, volume two, pages 155 through 56. He says, quote, uh, speaking of the Mosaic Covenant ordinances, I believe, he says, quote, they were not outward rites and services of any sort, the outward came into existence merely for the sake of the religious and moral elements embodied in it, for the spiritual lessons it conveyed, or the sentiments of godly fear and brotherly love it was fitted to awaken, end quote. And just to maybe expand on that a bit more, he does uh, relate all the, all the ordinances in some way to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Uh, Michael, would you like to say anything to either one of these quotes or things that Benjamin has raised? I would reiterate what I said from Psalm 51. For thou desirest not sacrifice. Hosea says the same thing. 6.6. 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Um, Samuel says it to Saul. When he disobeys, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. It's important to recognize this was the point of all the sacrifices, was heart commitment to God. Just think of the burnt offering itself. We have an animal slain and laid whole upon the altar and ascending in a cloud of smoke to heaven. What better image could we have invented for exactly what Paul calls believers to in Romans 12 to lay our bodies as living sacrifices upon the altar as our reasonable service. If these sacrifices were not evangelical and about our gospel faith and life, then what were they about? It doesn't make any sense to separate them from the covenant of grace. In fact, it seems that's the very error that Samuel and Hosea and David are addressing. That was what the Pharisees did, and that's why Christ had to remind them that I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice. Are the Baptists saying that the Pharisees actually understood the new, the Old Testament better, that it was entirely outward and external? It seems clear the Bible would say otherwise. I agree with your criticism. I've said it the same. I've said the same thing for years now, having studied this. The Reformed Forum guys have raised the same exact point, namely that is this not to repeat the fatal mistake of the apostate Jews to reduce the religion to externals divorced from true piety? Um, it, it appears to is me. It, is it no surprise that most Baptists in our country? are Zionists of some sort in which they have far too much love for unbelieving Jews, even to the point where some of the extreme ones are saying that they can be saved today through mere external obedience to the law. Now, I know the 1689 men don't agree with that, but I would want them to look that in the face and explain how their system distances itself totally from that right right well if you listen to the interview dr renahan says four or five maybe six times that um the obedience demanded the obedience commanded the obedience required under the mosaic covenant was an obedience that even an unbeliever could render and what i want to hear from the 1689 federalists is how do you reconcile that definition of the mosaic covenant obedience with the things that we've been talking about how can you possibly reconcile it with that i don't i don't see how you can do that um to me it's startling to even suggest that that is what god was requiring and you know, if you read patrick fairbairn he says the same thing he actually takes a man named john erskine to task twice a man that 1689 Federalists appeal to and basically says if this is your view of Jehovah's dealings with his people you don't even under you don't understand God and you don't even understand the covenant um, to put it in simple terms mm. so let's move on now to typology the differences in typology and some of this may be a little abstract. So, you brethren, if you want to try to add some concrete elements here with me, that would be useful. Um, as far as I know, 1689 Federalists and the system itself hold what we could call two-tier, T-I-E-R, or two-level typology. Um, level one would be the carnal type, which simply looks forward to the antitype. So, for example, the manna from heaven uh, given to the wilderness generation, that is a carnal or physical type. They could actually touch it, you know, and eat it. It was real. And being a type, it's prospective. It's looking forward to the antitype, which is spiritual, which is the Lord Jesus Christ to come, where he comes and gives of his flesh uh, for our eternal life. So hmm. there's the carnal type, the manna, and then there's the spiritual antitype in the future. That, as far as I understand, and I'm, I'm basing this off of Brandon's own interview with 1689 Federalist podcast, something I can't remember now at this point, but two younger men, he says very plainly, the manna's only old covenant function was to physically sustain israel what i believe is the proper view of typology which you i think you can prove from a number of places is what we could call three-tier or three-level typology level one yes there's the carnal element which would be any which would be a person an ordinance an event an act so a lamb sacrifice or david or yes the manna that's the carnal level two would be the symbolical so this would be Religious and spiritual redemptive truths, all with reference to Christ, his person, and his work. And that's something that has a then-present value. It doesn't simply or merely look forward. And then number three, level three, is the typical element, 
which embodies the symbolical in whatever the carnal is and looks prospectively to the antitype to come. So manna, carnal, what manna teaches at the time it was given of Christ and of true religion, symbolical, and what manna looks to in the future regarding its final full fulfillment in Christ, that's the typical. Let me ask, does that make sense to you, brethren? Benjamin? So, um, and I appreciate breaking this down, Cody, because uh, this wasn't really on my radar, to be honest, but um, I I'm, want I'm to understand what, what you're seeing in the two positions, right? So when we're coming to the subject of typology, what we're talking about is that in the history of the Old uh, Testament of people of God, right, as recorded in the scriptures, what you do see are all of these um, pictures of Christ and his salvation, uh, which were to come, right? And so um, uh, the... the um, the man in the in the wilderness being one example, and and many others could be used, right? Um, uh, Christ himself spoken of as the second Adam, right? As a, who was a type of the one who was to come, according to Paul and so forth. And so, maybe I, I can ask you this question: Is what you're saying that um, from from the 1689 Baptist point of view? What they're saying is that there doesn't seem to have been much actual benefit of those uh, things to the actual people of the Old Testament. So in other words, there are things that um, are, are fulfilled and they're realized in the course of redemptive history and that Christ comes and we see that there is a resemblance to what happened in the Old. But am I correct in saying what? The, what you're what you see is that they're leaving out that this was for the spiritual good of the actual elect of God under the old old covenant types. In other words, that they would actually um, present Christ as the object of faith to those who partook of the man, for example, and it would actually uh, be presented to them in the actual history of the Old Testament, for example, even before Christ coming. And, Am I understanding or am I misunderstanding? Maybe you could just tell me if I'm, if I'm close. Well, let me offer maybe a qualification first. I don't know that Brandon and the Dr. Renahan are agreed um, because it's been a while, but I remember reading Dr. Renahan's blog in two different places, and it seemed like he was affirming both sides. Uh, but Brandon, and from what I've heard and read of him, is more clear. And so I think it would help to come back to the very clear thing uh, in the interview where he does say the, the manna's only old covenant function was to physically sustain Israel. So just to maybe introduce what I'm trying to say here, I don't believe that's the case. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Moses says uh, that God to the Israelites, he says, and he, that is God, humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know. And that is going to give us the reason why. That he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So the Lord was teaching them a spiritual religious lesson. Whether or not they learned that lesson is a separate question, but that's what the Lord was doing. It wasn't just to physically sustain them. Yes, it was a miraculous sustenance, but they were to see through that with the eye of faith and to learn things about God and about life. Understand God is the great provider. If he can sustain you know, my temporal life, he can sustain me spiritually. I think it's really a tender picture when you when you think about it, and then, of course, this principle is brought to its final fulfillment with the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives of his flesh uh, for our sake. So. Brandon says the manna fed Israel, that's it. And then as a type, it also is looking forward to Christ to come. I'm suggesting one, it fed Israel Two, it was God teaching them a religious and spiritual lesson ultimately all with reference to Christ. And yes, also it was pointing forward 
to what Christ would do. Does that make sense, Benjamin? Uh, I, I think it. I think I'm, I'm tracking with you, brother. So it seems to fall within the the broader trajectory of what you're observing, which is that the actual piety and spiritual uh, life of the Old, Old Testament saints is is uh, distorted in this in in this presentation. Is your concern right? Um, so these things had a particular function, which was uh, graciously intended for the good of the church at that time. And of course, when we talk about typology, we, we can refer to lots of different things, right? We can be referring to history, we can be referring to the actual ordinances, right? And we can be, um, yeah, re referring to the relations of different uh, uh, actual figures within history, right? Um, but I think that the what what you're observing there is that um, yeah they're wanting to see a typology is a real thing, but as it concerns the Old Testament itself, it had no real logic or function. Right? Yeah, it had the it, it had no then present. There was no symbolical value. Um, if you read Fairbairn, if you read Voss, and I'm not saying you've got to be a master of them, but they they take pains to argue that the typical is founded upon the symbolical because the symbolical is speaking of enduring eternal truth, things that Michael raised. This is an eternal redemption uh, that God has planned. And so the symbolical is setting that forth. Um, so maybe it would help first Corinthians 10, one through five. Paul says our father's, uh, they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It also says they did all eat that same spiritual meat. I believe it's talking about the manna. So it's you've got the carnal, right? The drink and the actual meat. There was real water and real manna, but it's Paul says it's both spiritual, and then he says it's Christ. It's setting forth Christ. He was then present in those very things some have called them sacrament sacraments or sacramental um you could call them extraordinary sacraments if you wanted michael does this make sense and would you like to add anything to it or speak to it it does make sense i don't quite see the sharp distinction between tier two and three but i get what you're saying the point is that the carnal was a spiritual sign and I think that drawing on sacraments is very useful for the Christian to understand this concept. So in the Lord's Supper, for example, we have bread. Interesting. The bread we have in the Lord's Supper is in itself less heavenly than the manna was. It's ordinary bread. It's not extraordinary bread given by a miracle from God. I hope there is no doubt that the right use of the Lord's Supper requires us to see in the bread a symbol of Christ offered for our spiritual good to be consumed by faith. If that ordinary bread ought to have such a spiritual significance to us, how much more so the extraordinary miraculous bread of the Old Testament of manna Add to that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So there's a sense in which our most ordinary daily bread outside of a sacrament is to be pointing us to the glory of God who saved us and to be a reminder to us of spiritual things. So if that's true, how much more so the manna does he i don't really understand how there would be anything worthy of the name covenant that would that would not require men to take the manna and set their eyes by it on things above yeah i agree <laughs> benjamin yeah i think that when I first began to read about Reformed theology, um, coming from 
not a 1689 perspective, but just an evangelical Baptist perspective. One of the things that was most beneficial to my own spiritual life was seeing how Scripture interprets Scripture and how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are mutually explanatory, right? So um, I think we mentioned last time, there's a, there's a lot about circumcision in the Old Testament, which really would, would have almost no useful uh, um, significance for a Christian today to give much consideration to, uh, except they would see that that is reported for our instruction in, in a particular sense, which is to understand the sign of, of the new covenant, right? And I, it seems to me that uh, when I see how zealously our reform fathers contended for this, often not only against Anabaptist perspectives, but also against certain forms of Roman Catholicism, which had a similar kind of uh, limited understanding of Old Testament spirituality. The reason why they, they wanted to really earnestly contend for the fact that these that there's a consistency across both Testaments is so that we don't uh, distort or misuse the, the New Testament, right? So it's precisely at, at the point where uh, there was a sharp, clear divide between the Passover uh, sacrament, for example, and the Lord's Supper, that the door is now opened towards heresies like transubstantiation, which actually utterly undoes the, the very definition of what a sacrament is, right? And instead of maybe being a sign of the Lord's body and blood, it becomes the Lord's body, blood, and divinity itself presented upon the on the altar and so forth. And again, I don't, I'm not saying that there's an exact parallel between the errors of one or the other, clearly not, because Baptists are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and uh, certainly a 1609 Baptist would repudiate Roman Catholicism. What, what I am saying is that one of the real guards against a decay in our doctrine and in our spirituality is allowing the whole scripture to be mutually explanatory and revelatory, right? And I think that this is why, um, yeah, giving careful heed to the spiritual life of the Old Testament will allow us to be checked against the exact, falling into the exact same temptations today or uh, against new temptations as, as we've seen. So that was something that I wanted to say. Thank you for that, brother. Um, I think if you read the New Testament in places, it plainly bears that out. First Corinthians 10, what we just read, what is Paul going to go on to do? He says, don't be like them. They, they murmured against Christ. They tempted Christ. Don't be like them. He doesn't say, you know, they tempted the externals of the Mosaic Covenant. He says, he says Christ expressly, um, that that's who they were um, tempting and, and murmuring. So, again, so, Michael, I'll pass it to you, brother. Is there any, is anything further that you'd like to add uh, to this point or even the, the, the wider discussion? No, thank you. Okay. Oh, brethren, if you're amenable to it, looking at the time, I thought maybe we could look at this last point um, under five, the vine and the olive tree. What um, Brandon Adams says there about that. Brandon says uh, Jesus in John 15 is speaking to the Jews and that he has in mind the old covenant and the curses to come, which will, will be poured out in AD 70. So here's a direct quote from uh, Brandon Adams, quote, John 15 does not refer to someone who's been baptized and later apostatizes, but rather to the replacement of the old covenant with the new, the transfer of the promised kingdom of Israel, old covenant, to those in Christ, new covenant, end quote. Uh, speaking of the vine and the branches specifically, Michael, what do you think about that idea that he's setting forth? Yeah, so I, what I gather, reading between the lines, is they're speaking about Christ saying that every branch that does not bear good fruit will be cut off and burned in the fire. Yeah, I believe it's that idea you could be connected and then you can be cut off, yeah. Yes. Well, the 
general apostasy of the Jews is one instance of that and one very great instance of that. That there was a connection. There was even membership in the covenant of grace, but a loss of its of its saving goods, which they never truly possessed. Now, they might cry foul here, saying it's external and outward. But no, no, we have always said, just as there's an invisible and visible church, which are one church in two different aspects, so there is an internal and an external covenant. Same covenant, but in two different aspects. And this, I think, this, this distinction, it enables them, if they would receive it, to, to keep all their insights about the possibility of mere outward carnal membership in a covenant. But you see, that's no difference between the old and new. It's just as true in the new. They boast the idea of all regenerate church membership. Well, that's not the true in the New Testament. It's not, you know, Simon the magician would be a good example, a man who it turned out was clearly not regenerate, who was rightly baptized, whether the apostles knew he was or not, because there is such thing as mere outward external membership. There are Esau's in the New Testament church. And that is, that's Christ's warning that there are many who have some relation to Christ. In that sense, they are branches in the vine, but they are not branches in the vine. They're not abiding in the vine by faith, which is the only and sole condition of saving interest in the covenant. They have no faith. So whatever outward connection they have with Christ, whatever real membership in the covenant they have it's not saving and because they're not saved they'll be condemned so i hope that's clear about what's meant but i do need to say something about this ad 70 stuff because we're hearing it everywhere today people are talking about ad 70 this and that and they end up interpreting it seems every passage in the new testament as having something to do with ad 70 well, I hope we would all be warned by what just happened with Gary DeMar, that someone would go the route of full preterism in which the resurrection happened in 8070, and now heaven and hell are being eternally filled and there's no great judgment or resurrection to come. That's heresy. And we need to be careful that we don't follow that and read things into the Bible that aren't intended. AD 70 was a great judgment, but it's nothing compared to the final judgment to come. And even regarding the Jews themselves, their later history was full of many terrible judgments and not just that. And so we need not exaggerate AD 70 and make countless passages in the New Testament to fit it. Yeah, I agree with you. Thank you for that reminder, Benjamin. Yeah, bro, I, I have very little to add to what Michael said, and I, I completely agree. I think at some point we should do uh, a more of a, a podcast on the danger of hyperpreterism and, and to be frank, uh, also the danger of a lot of forms of partial preterism. And I think that even if um, a lot of people who have a partial preterist point of view do not uh, become full heretics i think that uh, there is a hermeneutical issue there which is i, I think uh, very troubling to me as well so i don't want to emphasize that but uh, the other is more of a of a, of a concern about this whole way of approaching things um, it it does seem to me that um if you were a pastor and you came to John 15, right? And everything was was so wrapped up in, in um, the, the old covenant passing away, the new covenant being inaugurated, not to say that isn't an element of, of what is going on, because I agree it is an element, 
that that you fail to see that there is a timeless principle being articulated here and certainly one that's carrying forward under the apostles right in verse two every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit it it just seems to me that if you're dealing with people's souls right the immediate thing that every gospel preacher is going to want to go for is to immediately and directly apply that to the hearts of people right in front of them, right? And be very honest and say that those who are truly abiding in the vine will bear forth fruit. And those who are not bearing forth fruit, whatever they may have, as far as external church membership or profession of faith or baptism at whatever age, right? Um, they, it, it will prop them nothing if they are not abiding in Christ. And cer- certainly, like, I, I don't know how you can, you can um, get around this fact that it is speaking about those who, who have some relation to Christ, right? Who are, who are then cast forth. I, I really think that um, if, if we're really saying that this is no longer true in the New Testament and in uh, the way that's being described, right? Then I, then um, I, th- I think we need to go and back and check our work, right? Because there's a much more sensible, on the surface way to deal with these texts, which I think comports with how Christians have understood this for many years. So I think that's that's where I'd like to leave it. Well, thank you for all that, brother. Um, I'll speak briefly to a few things there. I took just minor notes. On terms of in terms of partial preterism, uh, I agree with you. It could be a danger. Uh, just briefly years ago, um, I got it, I got into that and certainly was on a path toward toward hyperpreterism. Uh, the Lord spared me from that, but I saw the inconsistencies that you talked about. I thought, you can't say this here and not say it over here, especially like with regard to Revelation, um, saying the beginning of the book is about 8070 and, and hinging that upon things which must which must shortly come to pass but then saying well this doesn't apply to the end of the book which says the same thing um inconsistencies like that in partial preterism uh certainly tempted me toward hyper preterism i backed away from that of course and have uh completely come away with that praise the lord in terms of john 15 uh, i think that brandon's reading is uh you know, manifestly not the case jesus is speaking to the disciples uh in the upper room and uh you know the way i view it is he's he's teaching them about things that are going to be relevant for the relevant for their new covenant ministry nothing's peculiar to the old covenant as it transitions to the new um and john does speak of abiding in christ just as michael michael referenced in one of his epistles i can't remember if it's first john or not um, so to me, the, the interpretation seems somewhat strained and forced to force it into this kind of a category. It seems to me, um, I mean, even as you raised Benjamin, it, it pastorally, what do you even do with this text then? Um, you, what, how are you going to apply it to the sheep in front of you? And, you know, what I'm wondering is, is, is this, the effort to evade some of the categories that we would hold with regard to the church and the covenant. Is that the fruit of this? In other words, um, I'm not sure. Maybe we can ask Brandon in, in time to come. So brethren, I, I, uh, I think we can leave it. We can leave it there. Uh, we've gone through all our material. Perhaps Lord willing, we'll have Brandon Adams on in the future. He's expressed interest in coming on and i think that we're willing to have him on and have a discussion a good faith discussion with him try to get some clarity on things um is there anything michael that you'd like to leave us with final words nothing to add thank you okay benjamin brothers anything that you'd like to leave us with any final words Well, Cody, I just want to thank you for all the work that you've put into this, like and putting it in one place. I really think this is going to be a useful resource for people who are struggling with this. And uh, certainly, I, I know it's still a contemporary uh, discussion among men I really respect who 
who really are hung up on some of these discussions. And just to say, I, uh, I know we began it with this spirit. I want to end in this spirit. We want to be uh, always striving to have a greater unity among the people of God and to be doing so in the right spirit, where we, we are not trying to misrepresent anyone, uh, nor are we trying to say that um, we cannot be um, uh, improving in our own understanding of the scriptures, right? And uh, I hope that uh, our Baptist brothers will take this in the spirit of love in which it's offered, that we desire for the, for the glory of Christ to have a right understanding of these things. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the, the Lord would bring pass where we would have one mind about the importance of um, biblical understanding of, of these things? Obviously, the importance of it is not the problem. It's coming to that further step where we, we affirm the same thing. And I trust that by the Lord's grace, he can also bring that to pass. So thank you again. And thank uh, thank you for those who've taken all the time to listen to these episodes. And as you say, we may be able to have a future episode on it, but I'm thankful for what we've already accomplished. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we could go through it, that uh, the three of us could go through the material. I will just say very briefly, I know that it's been profitable for some brethren here on the ground. Got very positive comments, so uh, I know that uh, for some it's been it's been very useful. Uh, and any misrepresentations um, have obviously not been intentional, and so we pray the Lord to forgive those things and for our brethren to be uh, to be patient with us. So, on behalf of myself and Michael and Benjamin, we thank you for listening. We trust the Lord will use us for your profit, and we hope to see you again.